Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today. My name is Paul Mumon. I'm the lead pastor. And wouldn't it be awesome if we could figure out how to get an extra hour of sleep like every Sunday? You know, wouldn't that be great? Um, I know if you've got young kids, though, they don't care, right? They, they, they don't adjust. And so we certainly, you certainly pay the, uh, the price for a change like that. But uh, hey, I had, and I think most of you know this, but I had the opportunity to travel to Israel back in May. And one of the common questions uh, that I've been asked since coming back, and, and it's kind of an obvious one, and it is, did you feel safe, right? You think about going to the Middle East, you think about going to a place that has so much attention, uh, you know, so much uh, difficulty surrounding it, you know, did you feel safe while you were there? And I'd say yes. Uh, the only time I felt a little insecure were the couple days that we spent in Jerusalem. They happened to be the two days that President Trump was in Jerusalem. So we were there at the, the exact same time. So I don't know if it was the safest place in the world or if it was an unsafe place or what was going on. It was a little exhilarating. But for the most part, yes, I felt very safe. And I think a lot of that safety had to do with um, the presence of so much security. I think the thoroughness uh, of the security. Maybe you've heard a little bit about Israel's reputation when it comes to security, and, and certainly it was very evident at the airport. And uh, we all know the reality today of traveling is you go through a lot of security at the airport, well, even more so in traveling into Israel, even leaving the country of Israel. Like our entire uh, tour group uh, arrived at the Tel Aviv airport the morning we were to depart, and you had to get there like three to four hours early because it's a pretty intense security process even to leave the country. And so we, as a group, all 40 of us were standing together in one place, and then what happens, and, and they prepped us for this, is a few different security agents come over to the group, and they'll just randomly grab two or three people from your group and then take you to separate locations. And so I remember I was just kind of hanging out there, and wouldn't you know it, I mean, the one person came over to me and said, sir, will you come with me, where you just kind of have that moment of like, where are we going? Like, I, you know, like, is it a dark room? You know, I mean, is there white gloves involved or anything like that? You know, thankfully, no, but... You know, for the next 10 or 15 minutes or so, it was just me and this security agents and lots of questions, you know. Who are you? What are you doing here? Uh, I want to know more about your trip, even day by day. Where did you go when you went to that place? What were you doing there? And, and what they would do then is they would get everybody back together, the security agents, and they'd all compare answers. And, well, you know, thankfully we had nothing to hide. And so we were able to, to find our way through. I want you to do this this morning. Imagine for just a second... Imagine someone stopping you at the door as you're coming in with a pretty intense question, something like, why are you here today? And you can tell that they mean a little bit more, you know, you know there's some business involved here, but why, why, why are you here? Can I get you to think about that if you're not already thinking about this morning? Why are you here today? Why, why, why get up on a Sunday morning? Why come out in the rain, the gray on a, on a morning like this? What, what? What causes you to come back, uh, to keep coming back to a place like this uh, maybe week after week? And what if, get this, like what if the person that you had to respond to, like after giving your answer at the door, what if they responded, no, that's not good enough, that, that didn't count, doesn't count, uh, doesn't qualify, it's not what we're looking for. Chances are you'd probably leave a little bit disgusted, maybe disappointed, certainly pretty frustrated. Today we're going to watch kind of sort of the same thing happened with Jesus and a group of people and, 
And it really comes together at a time when his popularity was soaring and these great crowds that are coming around him. In fact, if you've got a Bible with you today, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 8. I'm just going to warn you in advance. We're going to be all over the place this morning. We're going to do a lot of review today, uh, just kind of catching up with this series. But we're going to eventually get to Luke chapter 8, page 722, if you want to use one of the Bibles around the room. And for those of you that are new, we're in the ninth week of a series. We don't typically do series that long. I know we did one this summer, but uh, the ninth week of this series called In the Flesh, we're walking chronologically through the life of Jesus. And there are only a few weeks left in this series, which might be a disappointment for some of you. For others of you, you might be a little relieved because you might be thinking to yourself, why in the world are we spending so much time in one particular series, especially talking about Jesus? Well, he's kind of the point for us, all right? I mean, we've just kind of sort of decided that if we're going to follow Jesus, we ought to spend time examining Jesus studying Jesus, you know, good basketball teams practice the fast break, right? And they do it over and over again. Good football teams work on the run-stop defense, and they do it day after day. If we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus and model our lives after this man, I think we should make it our goal to know as much about him as we possibly can so that we can truly make him the aim of our life. Now, again, as I told you, I want to start off by doing a little review for you, uh, for us, just kind of catching us up to this point in this particular series. Again, we've been at this for the last uh, nine weeks, and geography has hopefully been helpful uh, for you, but uh, we, we started off at the very beginning of the series talking about Jesus' baptism. We know that Jesus was baptized down here approximately in the, the region of Bethany, that he was then tempted in the wilderness, and, and there's a lot of wilderness in Israel, and specifically, uh, we believe that Jesus was tempted in this area. He's going to come out of the wilderness. He's going to come back to the Jordan, where he's going to encounter John the Baptist once again, and a group of disciples that are going to step away from John the Baptist and make this commitment to start following Jesus, all right? They're going to start spending time together, getting to know uh, one another. Jesus is eventually going to lead them back up the Jordan River Valley to this area that he was from. Jesus was from Nazareth. We know that they go to this place called Cana, where there's a great wedding, and there's the, the first miracle that we have recorded in Scripture when Jesus changed water to wine. His disciples were there with them, all right? As we follow the chronology, they're eventually going to leave Cana. They're going to go back down the Jordan River Valley. They're going to go up to Jerusalem, the spiritual center for the Jewish people. And there Jesus is going to cleanse the temple. Uh, we know that he's going to meet uh, Nicodemus, and they're going to have a pretty important conversation. And then the scriptures say that Jesus had to go through Samaria. You didn't tri typically travel through this region that's known as Samaria. You'd come over to the Jordan River and go back up to the north. But Jesus and his disciples are going to kind of walk through a no man's land of sorts for the Jewish people. They despised the Samaritans, but Jesus had to go there to encounter a woman at the well. And her life is going to be changed forever. Revival is going to break out amongst the people that she knew and in this particular region. But then again, Jesus and the disciples are going to come back up here uh, to this region. We know that Jesus is going to heal the nobleman's son. That's going to happen out of Cana. He's going to return to Nazareth, as we talked about a few weeks ago, where he'll teach. He'll be rejected by those people that he grew up around, his own family, his own friends. All right. And so Jesus is 
going to leave there, and he's going to go and set up shop in a place called Capernaum, all right? And Capernaum will become the ministry center for Jesus, all right, and for his disciples. This will be ground zero for them, and Jesus is going to spend lots of time here in this region around Galilee, healing the sick, preaching in the synagogues, building relationships with people. And it's going to be from there that Jesus is going to invite these disciples into an even greater commitment when he says to them, I want to teach you to be fisher, fisher, uh, fisher of people, all right, to fish for people, all right. These, these men were fishermen, they knew fishing, but this was a new sort of fishing. And so he invited them to leave their boats and to leave their nets and to follow them again with a greater commitment than they have ever ha- had experienced or expressed before. And then again, they're going to continue the work. We often like to say that Jesus was going to take them on fishing trips. Now, not fishing trips that we would think of, but he's going to take the, he's going to step into the lives of their family, all right? Jesus is going to take them into the marketplace. He's going to take them back down to Jerusalem where he's going to heal a lame man. Jesus is just asking them to kind of follow him side by side as he's teaching, as he's healing, all right, as people's lives are going to be changed. And the disciples get to watch it all along the way. And so I can just only imagine that they're going to have an experience one day all right, and then they're going to go talk about it together, all right, because he's teaching and training these disciples for a greater work that he is going to call them to. And next, and if you follow the chronology, Jesus is going to appoint the 12 apostles. Now, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about this. Maybe you've read about this, but uh, for, the, for, for these uh, men to become apostles, basically, these are men who will serve as leaders, all right, in Jesus' ministry. These are the men that he's going to appoint point and designate to carry on his ministry work after he's crucified, all right, after he ascends into heaven. And so, so often when we think about the disciples, right, I've been guilty of this too, we think about the 12, all right, we focus on the 12, all right, but a disciple was anyone that was following Jesus. And so those numbers of disciples were very great and continued to grow. The 12 apostles gets much more specific, all right? An apostle is someone that is called into a position of leadership, all right? They, 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 are, they are given an even greater mission. There's authority that's being placed upon them. And so that's what Jesus is doing with the 12, the 12 apostles. This happened uh, about two and a half to three and a half years into Jesus' ministry that he finally appointed the 12. And again, all of the apostles, those 12 were disciples, but not every disciple is an apostle, all right? And so I, I, I just want you to see uh, the, the difference between the two. And this is going to be important. We're going to look at this in just a second. But after the 12 are selected, uh, Jesus preaches on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, ben talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, from there, he, uh, Jesus healed a Roman centurion. He's going to find out that uh, his cousin John the Baptist is in prison. Uh, and then Jesus, as we talked about last week, is going to go to Simon the Pharisee's house, all right, where he is anointed by a woman who is just simply known for her sin. All right? And all that leads up to what we want to look at today and uh, where we want to look at, at a series of miracles that Jesus is going to perform in, in pretty quick succession. All right? Or at least we're going to cover them quickly. Uh, and they're all captured starting in Luke 8. All right? Luke 8 and 9. And let's pick it up in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Again, page 722 if you're using one of the Bibles in the room. Here's what Luke records. One day Jesus said to his disciples, uh, let's go over to the other side of the lake. All right, that is the Sea of Galilee. So they got into a boat and set out, 
And as they sailed, he, Jesus, fell asleep, which is what I'm planning to do about 2 o'clock this afternoon, all right? Maybe like some of you. But a squall came down on the lake so that, in the boat, so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. Verse 24, the disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Look what Jesus says. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. I was able to capture uh, this little video here uh, when we were in Israel, and uh, this was one late afternoon. Uh, we had a rest day, and there was a storm that was crossing over the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So I'm looking up towards Capernaum right now. We're on the east side of the sea, and it was just pretty fascinating to see uh, this storm. These storms on the Sea of Galilee were not uncommon, but they rarely happened at night. All right, that we see here in Luke's account. And remember, these were fishermen, which meant they were experts at sailing, especially in storms, that there was something different about this storm. All right, in fact, Luke says the word that Jesus, uh, he uses a word here that Jesus rebuked uh, the storm. That seems to suggest that there was, this was far more than a summer thunderstorm, all right? This was a, a spiritual event, all right? There was a spiritual attack taking place. But look at what Jesus responded to them after he calmed the storm. Verse 25, he said, where is your faith? He asked the disciples in fear and amazement, because really this was the first time that Jesus had demonstrated his power over uh, creation, all right, in something like a storm. But they said, in fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? Like, who is this guy? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, we look at this and think, how in the world, all right, can these disciples doubt Jesus in a moment like that? You know, the same reason you and I do. All right, I mean, it's, I'm guilty of it. I'm, I'm guilty of taking my eyes, taking my focus off of Jesus all the time. And the same is true for these disciples. And so they're learning, all right? They're growing, all right, just like we do, okay? Now, after this, and forgive me, again, we're going to just speed through these real quick, but you can check them out for yourself uh, even this week. But in verses 26 to 39, then, Jesus is going to heal a demon-possessed man. Um, I preached on this uh, way back in August, all right, when we talked about the demoniac and the humans of the Bible series, so you can check that out if you want. Uh, in verses 40 to 48, we read that Jesus heals a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Uh, then in verses 49 to 56 of Luke 8, Jesus heals the daughter of a man named Jairus. And then if you switch over to Matthew's account uh, of Jesus' life, there are some other miraculous healings right around the same time, but it all leads up to the story that we want to focus on with the remaining time that we have left. Now, why do we review it all? Here's why I wanted to review it all with you today. I just want you to see how Jesus' ministry really seems to be picking up steam, all right? You could say that it's hitting on all cylinders, and he's drawing large crowds wherever he goes. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say he's starting to feel the tension a bit about his time here on the earth and, and knowing that it's going to come to a close. And so really, and what we're going to see that happens next, it's almost as if Jesus is kind of pushing the baby birds out of the nest, all right? That uh, he needs them to go out and to experience life a little bit. And so he, he is sending the 12 apostles now out to minister by themselves. Let's check this out together. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Luke records this. When Jesus had called the 12, and most likely that word is capitalized in your Bible, the 12, again, just designating that these are the apostles. It, look what it says. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. 
all right, and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 6, so they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. It's important to note, all right, that when Jesus sends people out to do ministry, all right, what does he instruct them to do? Notice that he commands them to heal the sick, all right, and to preach the good news. The two go together. And I just think it's so cool to see how they they go hand in hand. Jesus says that our ministry in the world, I think we can learn from this. We are learning from this. Our ministry in this world should involve both meeting the physical needs and the spiritual needs of the people the Lord calls us to. I take, for example, World Vision. How, how many of you uh, ran either the half or the full or the 5K yesterday uh, with World Vision? All right, we've got a couple in the room ran with World Vision in Indianapolis, the Monumental Marathon. Um, I, I ran the half. Anybody run the full here or both half? All right, okay, both half, all right, that's, I'm, I'm not crazy enough to do a full, but uh, man, it was a great experience to, to run for a greater cause, all right? World Vision's uh, mission is to address both physical needs and spiritual needs, especially right now and through the event that we participated yesterday in bringing clean water to kids in Africa. And so, uh, like those here this morning and others from our Carmel campus and really around central Indiana, uh, World Vision announced yesterday that Indiana raised $600,000, you know, from individuals running the race, people like you that supported those running, to address a clean water need in Africa. Again, addressing spiritual needs and addressing physical needs. See, it's hard to meet spiritual needs, all right, when people have very real physical needs. We experience this in places like Haiti too. And at the same time though, if we only feed the poor or clothe them without having any concern with their spiritual needs, well then we miss the whole point. All right? And so Jesus sends his disciples out. It's work study really what he's doing here. Now while they're out on the own, uh, their own, something p- pivotal happens. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is killed by Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, remember, again, that this is the cousin of Jesus. He baptized Jesus. He's a friend and a ministry partner, really. And so it's fair to say that Jesus is upset by this, all right, that he's bothered by this. He's likely mourning. He probably cried. And look at what happens next as Luke records. Verse 10 says, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done, and then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida, all right, Bethsaida here to the east, all right, they went there, but the crowds learned about it and followed him. Now, again, let's just take a second and try and understand what's happening, what might be going on in Jesus' mind, all right, all this pain, and this heartache swimming around in his head, and all he wants to do is get away with his closest friends, these apostles, debrief, all right, hear about what they've experienced, what they've learned in this sending out time, and certainly to be able to grieve and to mourn together, but the crowds follow him. So he's got every reason to push them away, right? He's got every reason to say, I'm not available today, or I'm not going to be available for the next few days. But look what Jesus does there at the end of verse 11. It just says he welcomed them. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed healing. 
And then there's what happens next. And again, you probably know this next story, especially if you've grown up around the church at all. But let's pick it up in verse 12 and how Luke records. It says, late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, and there's a footnote there that about 5,000 men were in this crowd. So if you add women and children to the numbers, it's potentially 10 to 15,000, if not more. But he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is the account that we know of as the feeding of the 5,000. All right? And again, for whatever reason, at least in this point in history, they only counted the number of men. And so it's likely many more. Now, again... Remember that Jesus is at the height, really, of his popularity. In fact, I would say that this story represents potentially the largest crowd he's ever taught in front of. And so while the disciples are probably pretty excited about what they see happening, it's been a long day. All right, it's been a very long day, and it's getting late. Matthew's account tells us that this uh, happened as evening uh, approached. Mark says it was late in the day. Luke records that it was late in the afternoon. From the other accounts, we can see that for most of the day, Jesus has been teaching. All right, he's been healing the sick, and he's speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And so the disciples are probably getting tired, all right, just like everyone else, and they're hungry, and they want to rest, all right, but they can't just tell Jesus to stop, all right, you know, and feeling like they have that authority over him. So maybe they come up with a plan. And so it's almost like, can't you hear him explaining to Jesus, you know, somebody walking up, hey, Jesus, man, great messages today, by the way, all right, but hey, we're starved, all right? I, mean, I don't know if you've lost track of time, but, but we're starved here. So let's people, send people out. Let's go get a bite to eat together. But Jesus, and again, he's so compassionate, And he's interacting with the people and healing them. And maybe without even looking up, he just says, you give them something to eat. All right? Now, long story short, the disciples look around the crowd. They find a boy with a barley bread and five fish. And we find out from the apostle John that it was the boy that offered up his lunch in this particular moment. Which is a miracle in itself, all right? That this boy brought a lunch and he's still got food left over, all right? Although I guess we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, if you go through your kids' lunches someday, I'm sure you look through and there's still the sandwich and the carrots are still in there. But the Twinkie's gone, right? I, like, I, I'm thinking the boy probably had a Twinkie, but it's gone, all right? He, he ate that first. And uh, do, do, can you even buy a Twinkie still today? Or are they, those all gone? Whatever. But uh, anyway, think about this now. Where this miracle ends up is pretty amazing, but where it begins... It's just as amazing. Like, it begins with a boy who had the faith to offer up what he had, believing that Jesus could bring something greater from it, which I think is just a great faith lesson for you and me. All right? It's a great faith lesson for us that that your sacrificial giving, giving of the very best, giving all that you have, you know, sometimes the very last of what you have can really go a long way for the Lord. I mean, for this boy, his one sacrificial gift provided enough, provided God with everything that he needed to provide a miracle for others. Now, could God have fed the people from nothing? 
absolutely. I believe that God could do that, all right? But that's not how often God chooses to work. I mean, instead, he chooses to take what we give, he chooses to take what we offer and turn it into something great for the sake of others. And yet, how often do we let what we cannot give prevent us from offering what we can, and so we potentially hold back? All right, we hold back with God and we miss out an opportunity to what, watch what God can do in us and what God is capable of doing through us. But this boy had great faith and he gave what he had. Now, I think you can sense the hesitation from the disciples but what we, by what we see happens next, but we can see that they have an opportunity to grow in their faith as well. Jesus tells them to sit people down in groups and then he prays and next he breaks up the bread and the fish, but instead of giving them out himself, what does Jesus do? He gives it to the disciples to hand out. So he's putting them to work. Jesus uses his disciples here and in the process of handing out this food to everyone, show his glory. Man, what did it mean for their faith to watch that the baskets never went empty, that there was going to be enough? And what a great reminder for us that God not only wants to bless our sacrificial gifts, but he wants us to serve, all right, so that he can grow our faith through it. All right, that's what he's doing here with the disciples. And, and that's just so true of serving today. Uh, it's so true of serving, you know, at, at a place like Genesis. Like when you serve in Gen Kids, all right, you're not just providing a place of care so that adults can go to church. But when you serve in a place like Gen Kids here, all right, you're helping to disciple our young kids, the young boys and girls in our ministry to grow up into to followers of Christ. And I, I, I just hope you realize how important that really is. Like I was reminded of that just last Saturday. I, I traveled back to Springfield, Illinois last Saturday for a funeral. I lost a high school friend who suffered five years with cancer. And so um, I, it was great to go back and to reunite with some really close friends that I hadn't seen in a long time, but also to go back to the church that I grew up in. I spent all of my life in one church. And I'll tell you one of the things that the Lord did for me is he just reminded me as I looked around and I saw all the different men and women that, especially my parents' age, um, that invested in me, that taught my classes, you know, that took me on trips, that served in my student ministry. It's a big deal, right? It's a very big deal. And it's an opportunity to serve. When we offer up ourselves, God can do great things with it. And it's not just in a place like Gen Kids, but when you, when you volunteer to hand out worship programs at the door, you're not just giving out literature, but you're, you're a, a, a greeter you know, to people that may be coming and may be coming for the very first time. On Friday... We celebrated the big event uh, here at Genesis. We had over 300 people come. It was an opportunity for us as a staff to say thank you to all of our volunteers. We had a great time. I think we had a great time. We really worked hard to have a great time and just celebrate together. And uh, I, I just want you to know that if you're on that team, if you serve in some capacity here at Genesis, we are, we are very grateful for you. Again, we couldn't do this uh, without you. But what I need to say is that there's more work to be done. And what I want to say to some of you this morning that aren't serving on a team right now is that maybe you've been sitting on the sidelines for some time, and it's time to get in the game. Like, we need you to get in the game. And maybe you're new, and maybe you're still trying to figure out where you fit in. I get that, all right? And I'm sensitive to that. Or for some of you, maybe you used to serve, and for whatever circumstances in life, you took a break. We all need breaks, all right? But if I could just say to you in the best way that I know how, for some of you, 
it's time to get in, all right? It's time to get off the sidelines, to get off the bench, and to get in the game and to find a place to serve here at Genesis, and especially if this is your church. If you call this your church, uh, we need you in the game. All right, we need you serving here. What we attempt to do every single week requires so much help. And we've got a great team right now. We've got a really great team, but some on those teams are working a lot of overtime, all right, trying to cover all the work that there is. And if every person, if every person did his or her part here, well, we'd have more than enough help. And and do you know what else? I believe some of what God wants to do in your life, well, he's just waiting for you to step forward, all right? He's waiting for you to say, here's another area of my life, Lord, that I'm going to give you authority over. And I believe God wants to do so much more through our church, but some of that's not going to happen, all right, until every person is willing to get into the game. And so you know who you are. And we love you and you're welcome here. But if you call Genesis Church your church and you're not serving, we need you to get in the game. And uh, if you're ready to do that, mark that on your connection card this morning. Drop it off at the info hub. Just say, hey, I'm willing to serve. I don't know where. We'll follow up and help you in that. Grab somebody, grab one of our staff and talk to them about it. But let's all get in the game together and watch as the Lord grows our faith and increases our ministry and influence here in central Indiana. And I just think that it's great that Jesus took this boy's lunch and he recruited the disciples to serve. Serving and giving continue to be a heart of the Lord's ministry. And I love at the end of this dinner, the disciples are the ones who get to go around and clean up the leftovers. All right, there's not just enough, but there's leftovers, and they end up with 12 baskets of food, 12 baskets, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. There's so much symbolism that we could learn from here, but one thing for sure is this, God's faithful. All right, he shows his faithfulness, he shows us, he reminds us that he is a good provider as he provided manna for the Israelites through Moses in the wilderness. Here he provides bread for the people through Jesus, all right, and because he's God, He's more than willing to provide for us too, all right? And sometimes just enough and sometimes in abundance and it doesn't matter what kind of bind you find yourself in even right now. He is a God that can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And and what we could do is stop right here, pray, say amen, and get out of here with a really good feeling of all the things that God does for us. But I got one more thing for you quickly. And in the last week, I've just been struck by what happens next in the story. And in order to understand what happens next, you actually got to turn over to John, all right? And so if you're in Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, go to the right, all right? Go over to the book of John, John chapter 6. And what we see is, all right, I'm going to keep going here, is that after this miracle, the people are so impressed by Jesus. Remember, there were great crowds here that they're ready to make him king. Well, Jesus isn't ready for that yet. All right, or at least the type of king they have in mind. So Jesus hurries away. He goes off by himself. His disciples get in a boat. Jesus very famously walks on the water, yet another miracle. But it's what happens after that that really bothered me this past week. Because the next day, the crowd goes looking for Jesus. He had gone back to Capernaum, again, which is home base for him. And the crowd shows up there. And he tells them this, John 6, verse 26. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, the Greek word for ate here is the clue for us, because the Greek word for ate uh, indicates that they, they had devoured it really in the most carnal sense. Basically, what, what John is trying to communicate is that the points are, that the point is that their hearts were so focused on the physical satisfaction. All right, that Jesus provided. And so they wanted more now. Skip down a few verses. Verse 35. 
Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, note the I am statement. We could spend a month just on that. But in essence, Jesus is saying, I, the Lord your God, I'm the bread of life. All right? I'm here to provide. I'm here to fulfill every need you've ever had. In other words, I can sustain you. Um, I'm all you need. Anything else is temporary, but I am the only one that can truly satisfy. And then he continued, skip over to verse 53. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Now, I realize those words are a little tricky to understand. Basically, flesh and blood represent the entirety of someone. Uh, And so Jesus is saying here, you can't just pick and choose what you like about me. All right? But instead, Jesus says, if I'm going to satisfy you at the very deepest level of your soul, then you're going to need to invite me into every room of your life. Again, Jesus doesn't want to do just a small remodeling project with people. He wants complete takeover. He wants to touch every part. Look what happens next, verse 66. John records, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What happens? People abandon ship. And why? Because wanting Jesus to do something for us and wanting Jesus are not the same thing. And really, you could say this is one of the saddest verses in all of Jesus' ministry. And so imagine the rejection that he feels at that moment. In his deity, as fully God, he clearly knew that he had work to do and what that work required. But in his humanity, potentially the sting of rejection. So he turns to the 12, those who are left, and look what he says to them, verse 67. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. I just hope you see the pain in his words and maybe the hurt, but just listen to what happens next because Peter speaks up and responds, verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I don't know about you, but I just love the passion in Peter's confession here. Like, Jesus, where would we go? Where else would we turn? You have the words of eternal life. Here's the thing for us today. There are so many things today, so many things fighting for your attention and my attention, fighting for our hearts today. There are promises of love. There are promises of satisfaction. There's promises of success and fulfillment. And and these come by way of a sport or an activity or a career path or a certain home in a certain neighborhood or a new relationship or all of the busyness that we can somehow manage in our lives over and over again. We are constantly pressured to give our lives to so many things. And they're not all bad things either. But here's what happens when we go looking to do, uh, uh, when we go looking to something else to do for us what only God can do, it becomes an idol for us. And idols never hold up and they will always let us down. And that's part of what Peter is saying here. Where else can we turn? Where else can we go? Jesus, you have eternal life. You have everything we've ever needed or hoped for. It is found in you, and then look at his next words in verse 69. He says, we have come to believe, meaning it's been a process for us, but we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. He basically says, we took a step of faith to follow you, 
And what we've learned, well, we've learned to trust you. And we've discovered the more we walk with you and the more we spend time with you and the more confident we become that you are the only one that we need in this world. Basically, Jesus, you are our aim. All right? And so we believe and we know. And I just want you to know today that that's what we're after as a church. And that's what we're going after. And that's why we study Jesus and why we want Jesus because it's all about Jesus. Right? And he's the one that we're following. And here's, he's the one that we're, we're chasing after. And the purpose of life here is really wrapped up in Peter's confession. What's the purpose of life? He says to believe and to know. It's Peter's way of saying knowing Jesus and living for Jesus is the only thing that matters in this world. And that's just so important. I pray that you realize how important this is today. More important than anything else that you get right in this life. Because you can mess up at school. You can mess up in your career. You can mess up in your marriage. You can, you can mess whatever else up in life. If you get this right, if you get Jesus right, you're miles ahead on this. And at the same time, if you get everything else right, all the rest of your life is perfect. But you miss this then you've totally missed the point of your time here on this earth. Which brings me back to the question that we asked at the very beginning, and that is, why are you here? What brings you here today? You know, some of you are here this morning because you're curious. That's a great place to be. Genesis is a great church for curious people. And maybe you're curious about a relationship with God, and, you know, you don't call yourself a Christian yet, but you, know, you want to know more. I pray that you keep coming and keep studying. I, I promise you, you won't regret it if you open up your life to the Lord. Maybe you've been coming to church for a really long time, but you've never come to believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God, as Peter confessed. Can I just ask you today, why not? What's preventing you from taking such a step? Jesus calls for a decision. There's gonna come a point in your life where he's gonna call you to a place of decision. Could Could today be decision day for you? It's not too late for you to Step into relationship with Jesus because who else in this world has the words of eternal life? And for some of you, I just got to say, you've been going through the motions of church one, two, three times a month, and maybe you jump in and out for a while, a little bit here or there, but if you're honest, when you think about your life, nothing is really changing. If you're honest with yourself, it's not really about Jesus for you. I, I just pray that you would hear And believe and know today that it's all about Jesus. And what he's offering on this day, he offers for you. He always offers his life for people. And what's that purpose for us? It's to believe and to know and to live. Because he is the only thing that matters. Do you know him? Have you put your faith in him? For some of you, are you ready to renew your faith in the Lord today? Let's pray. Father in heaven. My my prayer for our church is that we will be a church of people that are pursuing Jesus Christ and recognize that some are just getting started in this journey, and that's a beautiful, wonderful place to be. For others that have maybe been around this for a little time now, but maybe for quite a while, the opportunity, the invitation is always there to follow you, to make you the aim. Lord, we want you to be the aim in our lives and for our church to know and to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and at the end of the day, the only thing that matters. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.